All right. Well, I'm excited to be continuing our series, Better Than Ever. It's a series on the book of Hebrews. We've been studying it for the last three weeks. We'll be studying it uh, up through Easter, uh, and then we'll begin a new series. And that's one of my favorite things to do. So um, we're excited uh, that you're here with us on this journey. If you've missed a week or two, uh, you might want to catch up. You can go to our website, linwoodchurch.org. There's a media page. All the messages are there. Even the older messages are are grouped together in categories uh, by series. Um, or you can subscribe to our podcast if you have a smartphone and, and you use a podcast app. You can find us in there. Just search for Linwood Church and uh, stay with us if you miss something. But uh, the big idea here of this series is that Jesus is better than ever. He really was and is better than anything that had come before him. And he is better than anything that has been since. And he is better than anything that will come after. And this book of Hebrews has these times in the text where it says Jesus is better than, better than angels, better than Moses. Uh, He offers us a better rest. That's what we're talking about today. Um, If you were here last week, you know we were talking about Moses, and you know we were talking about how the new covenant that Jesus brought is a covenant that makes us sons and daughters of God, whereas Moses' covenant, the old covenant, made the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, servants of God, and they enjoyed blessings as long as they did what the covenant required of them. So our new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. And it doesn't mean that we cease to to serve God. Just on the contrary, we serve him out of a heart of gratitude. In fact, one of my favorite things that happens as a preacher is when somebody says your sermon back to you better than you said it the first time. And this happens every now and then. And uh, sometimes they say it back and it's not at all what I said and it's way off base. And you're like, wait, 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 we've got a time out. That's not what I said. Here's what I said. Well, last week, Sunday afternoon, I'm scrolling through Facebook and I see one of our newer attendees here at Linwood on their Facebook wall wrote this phrase. And I just loved it. They said, serve God out of gratitude, not out of a do more, try harder attitude. And I thought, Oh, that's good. Right? It even rhymes, right? You know, serve God out of gratitude for the new covenant that we're recipients of. We serve him, we sacrifice, we give, we evangelize, we disciple. We do all these things out of gratitude because we are children of God, because we have a glorious inheritance in Christ, not out of a do more, try harder attitude. And so kudos to you for getting it, getting it even better than I got. I'm like, man, that should have been the bottom line. So um, one of the, the questions we asked last week, though, was do you look more like Moses in the old covenant of do more, try harder, here's the list of rules and regulations, follow those, check all the boxes, and you might get in if all goes well, or do we look more like Jesus? who said, love one another, and opened his arms and received the, the, the bottom rung of society is who Jesus was always going to, right? The tax collectors, the sinners, uh, the, the people that were as far from God as you could get were the ones that Jesus went out and found and brought into the family of God. And so it's a good question to ask. Do we look more like the old covenant of Moses or the new covenant of Jesus, because the new covenant of Jesus, that covenant of love and grace, of God's unconditional acceptance and grace towards us, is irresistible to the world around us. And that's the covenant that we need to be representing to the world around us. So today we're going to be focusing on a better rest. A better rest will be in Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses there. If you have a Bible with you, turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to pick one up from the seat in front of you and uh, turn to page 1865 in there. 
And I want to read this passage all the way through, and then we'll focus on uh, a few chunks of it in particular and see how they apply to us. But here's what the writer of Hebrews says to this his audience, which is Jewish converts to Christianity. So these are people that were born Jewish, they were raised Jewish, they were raised under the law, and have since become Christians. And now we're kind of, I don't know, maybe a little bit of buyer's remorse or, or maybe a little second thought. Maybe we should go back. We kind of understood the law. We kind of understood do more, try harder. We kind of understood sacrifices and those types of things. So maybe we should just go back. And that's who this letter is written to. And this is one of these better statements here in chapter 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest, God's rest, still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said, So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. Or somewhere, he has spoken, don't you love that? I just got such a kick out of that. Like, I've, I've forgotten a scripture address or two in my days as a preacher. And here the writer of Hebrews in scripture is saying, somewhere it's written down. I got a kick out of that. And then I remember, well, you know, they didn't have the names and numbers that we have. So maybe it really was somewhere. Uh, but anyway, so somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. He quotes Genesis 2.2. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Now he's going back to Psalm 95 that he was quoting. This gets a little confusing, but stick with me here. Therefore, it still remains that some will enter that rest, the rest of God. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as he has said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So whatever day that you hear his voice, that you hear God's voice speaking out to you, don't harden your heart. That day is today. Whenever it happens, it's today. Don't harden your heart against God's voice. Anytime you hear God's voice speaking, anytime you hear the word of God proclaimed, don't harden your hearts. In verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, that generation, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Got it? Anybody a little confused by all that? Just, it's okay. You can raise your hand if you're a little confused. I was a little confused the first time or two. To be honest, every time I pick up the book of Hebrews and read through a passage, I feel like I missed the prerequisite. Did you ever have that experience, like in college, where your advisor said, well, I'll call, make a phone call, and you can get into this class, even though you didn't take the prerequisite, and from day one you realize, I didn't take the prerequisite. I don't understand what it's all about. Hebrews is a little tough. It's okay for Hebrews to be a little tough. But I tell you what, you dig into Hebrews and you figure it out and you wrestle with it, it's worth it. Because the prerequisite is the entire Old Testament and about 4,000 years of Jewish history. So obviously you're not going to get all of that. But you can dig in and you can understand this and you can understand what God is saying to his people, to us today if we will dig into this a little bit. Because this passage is really, really 
quite simple. Even though it has a very complex structure and it kind of weaves in and out of two different passages and it does a couple of things that make it a little difficult, there's one subject of this passage. And if you listened, you heard the word ten times. Anybody know what the subject of this passage is? It's rest. It's rest. He says the word ten times, and it's really a relatively simple word or a relatively simple concept. Raise your hands if you like rest. Does anybody like rest? I see a couple ones went up pretty fast, right? A couple of you are smiling. There's a few people I've met. Like my best friend growing up, his dad was allergic to rest. Every time we went there for a sleepover, we'd stay up all night, and he'd be up working on some project, and Long about 8 o'clock, he'd come down, hey, guys, need your help on something. And he was, he'd been going for three hours. The guy was allergic to rest. But 95% of the people that I've met really like rest, right? We like sleep in particular, right? Zach, do you like sleep right now? You've got a three-month-old baby in the house, and rest is a little hard to come by. We like rest. We like sleep. This is something that God created for us. It's a gift to us. He encouraged us to have it. In fact, it made it into one of the big ten to to practice the Sabbath, to have a day of rest. And us humans, in our infinite wisdom, we turned rest into work. If you read about it, Jesus was always bumping up against this in his earthly ministry. They'd added so many rules to how to rest that it was almost impossible to rest without breaking a rule or, or something like that. So Jesus was always talking about the Sabbath. And he said something that was really interesting about the Sabbath. He said, man was not created for the Sabbath. Sabbath was created for man. It was a gift. It was a provision, God's generous and gracious provision to us to give us rest. And he commands us to do it. In fact, God was so smart that he said there was evening, there was morning on the first day. There was evening, there was morning on the second day. And throughout Israel's history, their days begin in the evening. They begin with rest. We rest first. And then we come out of rest and do our work for God. So Jesus invited us to find rest in him. One of my favorite passages is Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Learn from me and take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and easy to carry. And you will find rest for your souls. Not just rest physically, but rest for your souls in him and in heaven. So if rest is defined by the dictionary as a cessation from work, when we cease working, that's when we start resting. Let's see how must this apply to this passage, which is speaking about an ultimate or eternal expression of rest. It's not just talking about kicking your feet up at the end of the day. This is talking about entering God's rest. Remember on the seventh day he rested? It doesn't talk about an eighth day, does it? So there is an essence of God that involves rest, and that is his eternal nature is rest. And so how do we enter God's rest? And how do we see that rest contrasted by the rest of the generation of of people in Israel who came out of Egypt but did not enter the promised land because they wandered around in circles? And this passage tells us why. It's because of their disbelief, And they're disobedient. So if we want to enter God's rest, there are some things that we can learn from this and learn from them so we don't have to make the same mistake ourselves. In fact, St. Augustine said it this way. He said, our hearts, I'm sorry, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. 
Our hearts are seeking rest. Our souls are seeking rest. Jesus knew this. That's why he invited us to come to him. And our hearts are restless, and they will remain restless until they find their rest in God. Because that's the only rest that really satisfies. All the, the, the rest of this world that, that we seek or that we try to find, it falls short. It does not deliver what it promises. Only Christ and only a relationship with him and an interaction with God and the ways of God through Christ delivers the rest that we need. So this section that we're talking about here in Hebrews chapter 4 actually starts in the middle of Hebrews chapter 3. That part was even more confusing than this part. And you get the essence of it here in chapter 4. But that's why he's quoting Psalm 95 like he's already mentioned it. And that's why we picked up in verse 1 here because it makes clear that the ultimate aim of our lives and our journeys on this earth is to enter God's rest. Verse 11 said it very, very clearly. Let us make every effort to enter that rest. That's our goal. That's our objective is to enter the rest that God has for us, that he intended for us from the very beginning. That's the goal. That's what we're after. That's the ultimate aim of our lives is to enter that rest and to bring as many people with us as possible. So the definitions of success that the world gives us, whether that's wealth or pleasure or power here on earth, become idols that just distract us from the rest that God intended for us to have. In fact, Jesus said it this way, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What does it profit to gain all the success that this world has to offer and yet forfeit your soul? So you kind of have to ask yourself, what is the whole world for you? When you think of gaining the whole world, what comes to mind? And if it's anything but Christ, if it's anything but a deeper, richer relationship with him, anything but becoming more like him, then it will ultimately fall short. And you may even forfeit your soul. And just like the people of Israel that perished in the wilderness, it was disbelief and disobedience that keep us from attaining our ultimate aim. They were delivered by a powerful hand of God from, the, from Egypt. They saw the miracles. They saw the signs of wonders. They had no excuse because they had every reason to believe and to obey. Every reason to believe and to obey. And yet they acted without faith. They disbelieved and disobeyed. And there was no rest for them. And there is no rest for those who, when acquainted with Christ and presented with the gospel, choose to reject it, choose to disbelieve it and disobey it. There's no rest. And this is the, this is the other side of the coin. This is the part that we have to take very, very seriously. Because the Bible is clear. Scripture is clear that there's no rest for those who are eternally lost. There's only weeping and gnashing of teeth and torment and pain and suffering and deep, deep regret because the gospel was presented and it was rejected. And so we need to take this very seriously. So it's a complex passage, but it has a simple message on ultimate rest. I want to read verses 1 and 2 again and walk back through them um, and, and then continue on from there. This ultimate rest demands a response. And so in verse 1, when it says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, 
But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. So what's he saying? He's saying that the gospel demands a response, and the response to the gospel is faith. It's faith. You see, if we're not careful, we kind of lose sight of the gospel. Or I hate to say it this way, but I think some people sort of think they can move beyond the gospel or get bored with the gospel. Or when the preacher that they've been going to church for years and years and years starts presenting the gospel, they kind of tune out. Well, I've heard that. I've, I've, I raised my hand. I got saved. I got baptized. I'm moving on. Like the, the J.D. Greer says it this way. They say so many Christians think that the gospel is the diving board when it's really the pool. It's the whole thing. Yes, it's the diving board because the diving board is part of the pool. But you never really graduate from the gospel. You never really graduate from grace. You never really graduate from the good news that though our sin had separated us from God and created a gulf between us that we could not breach, we could not build the bridge, we could not get across, Christ came and made a way for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. He paid the penalty for our sins. And once we start to forget that or think that we've graduated from that, we're in perilous land. We're in perilous territory. But we're told that they heard the good news just as we've heard the good news. That they heard, they saw, they saw it with their own two eyes. They knew that God was the one true living God, the God that, that delivered that nation from Israel or the nation of Israel from Egypt. They knew it. They saw it. They had every reason to believe, and yet they didn't believe. They heard the good news, but they didn't obey the good news. They didn't believe the good news. And we hear it too. So hearing's not enough. Remember, what does Scripture say? Faith comes by hearing. The faith is what we need. It's faith in Christ. Faith in the good news of the gospel. Faith is what makes the difference. Hearing's not enough. Preaching, good preaching's not enough. Moses was the best preacher of his day. And yet he could not get them to believe. He could not get them to obey. Many in that generation rejected him outright. In fact, I would even say that memorization of Scripture, study of Scripture, even compliance and, and, and outward compliance to the commands of Scripture is not enough without faith. It has to be rooted in faith. We must believe it. We must believe it. And that word believe means to rely upon, cling to, and trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. And so I've got a stool up here today, and maybe you've seen this analogy before. Uh, if you haven't, it's a powerful illustration. If you have, it's a really good reminder. But I can say that I believe in the stool. How many of you would believe in the stool? If I said, that's a stool, you say, yeah, I believe in the stool. Well, there's a whole lot of people in the world out there that say, I believe in God. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. But they don't act like it, do they? So there must be a difference between believing in the stool and actually believing that the stool is sufficient to hold my weight. Because I can stand over here all day long, but until I actually come over and put my weight on the stool, I haven't actually believed that the stool is capable of doing what the stool was, says it can do. I haven't actually believed in Christ until I put my hope and my faith and my trust entirely in him. And even right now, this is what we do, isn't it? This is what we wise people do. We, we kind of have a contingency. So if this thing crumbles and goes out from under me, I got my feet down. I'm, I'm going to be okay, right? But this is what biblical faith looks like. This is like total trust, total trust. Like if the, if the stool crumbles, I'm going down because now I have put my faith in him. In it completely. And this is what we're called to do with Christ. We're called to completely trust in him. Entirely. 
Now, if somebody comes along and shakes this a little bit, shakes our faith a little bit, what do we do? We put a foot down, right? And if we're not careful, we never put that foot back up and keep our faith and our trust entirely in Christ. And so this took me some time to figure out and to really understand. You see, I grew up in one of the mainline denominations, and I really bought into the whole Christianity as a religion, where you do more, you try harder, you do more good than bad, and you're probably going to be okay. And it wasn't until I started hearing about a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then ultimately this idea of believing God, believing Christ, putting my faith and hope and trust entirely in him that I got on the stool and actually became a Christian. So I grew up in church, but I wasn't a Christian until I was 19. And then it was another three or four years before I realized, you know what? If I can trust him to be my Savior, I can trust him to be my Lord. I could actually do the things that he says to do. I could actually try to become more like him and put him as Lord of my life, not just Savior. Everybody wants a Savior. We're a little slower to sign up for a Lord. And yet we need a Lord just as much as we need a Savior. And of the 300 or so references to Christ, there are 16 of them that refer to him as Savior in the New Testament, and about 300 that refer to him as Lord. And so we are to look to him not only as Savior, not only to put our hope and faith and trust in him as Savior, but to put our hope and faith and trust in him and him entirely as Lord, that we will do the things he said to do and that we will seek to be as much like him as we possibly can. And so we enter his rest because you can rest here. You can rest on Christ. You put anything else under you, you can't rest. But you can rest in Christ. And that's our bottom line today is that we enter God's rest through faith. We enter God's rest by faith, by relying upon, clinging to and trusting in him and him alone for our salvation. There are things that follow after that naturally as we do that, but it starts with faith. It starts with reliance upon him. It starts with trust in him. It starts with clinging to him and him alone as our faith. That is the moment of our salvation. That is the genesis of our belief. And what flows from that is a lifetime of seeking to obey, of growing our faith, of deepening our faith, of expanding our influence for him in this world, of bringing others and helping them to get on the stool, get on the faith, put their faith in Christ and Christ alone. And then there's baptism. We're going to be baptizing people next week. I'm so excited about it. It's becoming a regular thing around here. And that's something I've been praying for since I got here. If you want to be baptized next week, just put it on your connection card. If you realize, yeah, Mark, my story's kind of like yours. I grew up in the church, but I was never baptized or I was baptized by my parents when I was a little kid. It wasn't something I decided to do. If you want to make a public profession of your faith, talk to me after service, put it on your connection card, call the church this week. We'll get the, the details worked out. If you're, if you're brand new to the faith and you're on fire for the Lord and you just want to let everybody know what Jesus has done in your life and that you're living for him now, then that's a perfect time to be baptized. If you're just new to this church and you've been baptized before, we've also got a Next Steps class coming in two weeks, and we'd love to interact with you and help you get connected here at Linwood. The Next Steps class is a great way to do that. So there's a couple opportunities that you have coming up very, very soon to sort of come into our discipleship pathway here at Linwood through baptism, through membership, through Next Steps, and finding out what your next step is and how we can help you to take that step.
Because that unbelieving generation that this passage is referring to back, the generation that came out of Egypt that scouted the promised land and saw how great it was and how wonderful it was, but rejected it out of unbelief and unfaith, they were not marked by faith at all. What do we hear about this generation? What do we see about them in Scripture in the Old Testament? We find that they were filled with grumbling and complaining and immorality and idolatry. Those were the things that marked them. Not faith, not love, not hope, not trust in God, but grumbling and complaining and immorality and idolatry. In fact, we're told there were only two out of that whole generation that believed. Only two. Caleb and Joshua. They went into the promised land, they saw it, they came back, we can do it, guys, we can take it, we can take the land, the Lord is with us. But the other ten spies gave a a, a faithless report, and the people followed after them. And so we have this warning here in Scripture, in verse 1. Let us be very careful. Let us be very careful, lest we be found to have fallen short of entering God's rest. These warnings in Scripture are there to remind us. They're there to correct us. They're there to caution us. A wise man once told me, learn from other people's mistakes, and then you won't have to make them all yourself. And it's good advice. And Scripture is full of people who made mistakes, people who got it wrong, people who did not respond in faith, people who did not obey. And then we see the results. And yet Scripture is also full of people who did make the right choice, who did trust, who did obey, who did respond in faith. And we see the results. And so we can learn from that. We can learn from these warnings. And we can be careful, as verse 1 says. We can pay attention. That word is actually the Greek word phobos. It's where we get our word phobia or fear. So we don't just be careful in the sense that mom tells you to be careful every time you walk out the front door. We're careful in that we're paying attention. We're, we're learning about this. We're understanding this. We're, we're seeking to grow in our faith every day. Because there is an ultimate rest. We read about it in verse 3. The first couple of, of words there in verse 3. Now we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed can enter that rest, that dominion of God, that, that place where his will is done. We're not just talking about Canaan and the promised land anymore. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about the exodus from the place where God does not reign, which is Egypt in the Old Testament, in our lives, it's our life before Christ. There's an exodus from that into the promised land, into the place where God's will is done, which we call the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus came. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is at hand. You can reach out. You can take it. You can experience it. You can live in it right now. It's an entrance into God's presence. It's an entrance into the place where his will is done. And we make our lives a place where God's will is done. Then our lives become a promised land of sort because we're seeking to do his will. We're seeking to respond in faith to everything we read in the New Testament and seeking to follow those commands of Christ because the rest that God invites us to is a totally different kind of rest than just a nap on a Sunday afternoon. And I like naps on Sunday afternoon. But the rest that God invites us to is a rest where we're no longer fearful for our salvation. It's a rest where we can trust in him completely, where we can put our feet up and we don't have to steady the ship anymore. We have put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ and we spend the rest of our lives learning how to live like him so as many people as possible can be reconciled to God and can spend eternity with God. And that is what we're after. 
So I spent a ton of time on the first three verses, and, and I'm not going to spend that much time on the next nine or so. But I can tell you that that next five, as it goes back and forth between those different covenants, is really just establishing that those people did not enter. That generation, that faithless generation that did not obey and did not believe, did not enter. But it brings it back to us, saying that we can. In verses 9 through 11, I want to close with this. There remains then a Sabbath rest For the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of obedience, the faithless generation's example of disobedience. This rest is available to us from trying to earn our salvation, from trying to do more and try harder over and over and over. That rest is available to us, and we enter it through faith in Christ. And that rest is not opposed to effort. This is, a, this is a, an unfortunate teaching in the church, that because you're resting in Christ, you don't have to do anything. There's no effort required. And yet this passage just said, let us make every effort to enter that rest. So there is an effort that comes alongside our faith to obey Christ, to be faithful to Christ, to serve God out of gratitude, not a do more, try harder attitude. Because we have our security in Christ, we respond with gratitude and we seek to serve him because faith is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We don't do it because we're trying to earn it. We do it because it's already been given to us. And we seek to bless God and bless others by sharing our faith with them. So the evidence of this faith in Christ is obedience to Christ. It's obedience to the command of Christ to love one another and to the teachings of the New Testament that flesh that out for us and tell us how to one another, one another. That the New Testament is filled with one another's because Jesus said love one another and Paul and John and James and the other New Testament writers, they said they need to know how to one another one another. So we'll tell them how to one another one another. And they said bear with one another and forgive one another and be gracious to one another and be gentle to one another and worship with one another. And these are all things that we do that help us to love one another so that we'll know how to one another one another. And that's what we make our focus Because Christ offers a better rest. It's a lot better rest. And I'm not just talking about naps in church during the sermon. Christ offers a better rest. Some people told me, great sermon, pastor. It's the best nap I've had all week. The question is, have you believed? Have you really believed? And have you been transformed by that grace? Because we enter God's rest by faith. Not by striving on our own. To secure our salvation on our own, we enter that rest by faith, by faith in Christ. And there will be evidence. It will be obvious to the world around us. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That's the evidence. Our lives should prove who we've put our faith and trust in. And it's not ourselves. So, as always, you have an opportunity to respond in faith. You have an opportunity to make an altar where you're seated, to come forward to one of these altars you pray in the middle, we'll understand that you'd like to pray alone. If you come to the outside, there's an altar on each side. That's an invitation for somebody to come pray with you, and we'll put a hand on your shoulder, and we will pray for you if you want to interact with us a little bit. 
please do. However you choose to respond, respond in faith. And I want to challenge you, if you've heard this message and you've responded and you're sitting on the stool and you believe and you're obeying, I want to encourage you, if there's someone in your life that you know does not believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, go write their name on a slip of paper, roll it up and put it on the cross as a reminder to you that there are people that are out there that we want in here, that we want to see come to faith. And that'll be a reminder to pray for them each time you come in here. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it instructs us and the way that it challenges us and the way that it encourages us. God, make us a people who respond in faith to your word. Make us a people who live out with faithful obedience all that you've asked us to live out. And for the one here today, Lord, that that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, but wants to, I pray, God, that they will lean into you now. That they will pray a simple prayer that confesses their need of a Savior, confesses their sin which has separated them from you, and humbly accepts your grace, entering into the kingdom of God, becoming a child of God through faith. And I pray, God, that they'll tell somebody right away and begin a process of moving towards you. In Jesus' name we pray.